17, if you would. John chapter 17. And uh, we are closing in on finishing these last night discourses. Uh, by God's grace, uh, we'll finish, we'll do chapter 17 tonight. And uh, as we do that, uh, then, Lord willing, next Thursday night, we might just put a review of some kind in, unless the Lord leads otherwise, and then uh, we'll move on to a different uh, topic on our Thursday night Bible study. And just to set the context, once again, as we know, Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas had been just sent out to get the uh, soldiers and the guards to betray uh, Jesus to the power of the chief priest and the scribes. I mean, they were the people who had the authority. And as Judas was making his way to them and explaining that tonight was the night, to, was the best time to get Jesus and they were assembling their people together. Jesus was walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would pray three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. But his, sent, his prayer would only be a few sentences. And in that time, Jesus covered almost every major Bible doctrine. Uh, I don't know how others would sit with this, but it's almost like Jesus' uh, teaching systematic theology, where he just summarized and brought together different topics. Uh, biblical theology is where you cover things in the order of Scripture. Systematic is where you bring every passage of Scripture that talks about a subject together. And Jesus just kind of brought it all together and crammed it in these few chapters. And then he's going to pray. And, and we often hear the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's really not the Lord's Prayer. That was to teach the disciples and in turn you and I today. That is the pattern for our prayers to God. John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Now, if Jesus were to pray for something, wouldn't you think that's important? I mean, especially at this moment. In just a few moments, he's going to be crossing the brook Kidron. Uh, John, uh, I mean, Luke tells us he's going to be very heavy and sore, amazed, so much so that the disciples just being around Jesus are going to basically black out, go to sleep. I mean, it is just going to overwhelm them, the emotions that Jesus is experiencing. If you've ever been around uh, a very powerful person and they're having a bad day, guess what? You are too. Uh, I mean, the, and Jesus was God. You don't think that that upset and turmoil in his soul was not overwhelming those closest to him. That's, that's why they went to sleep. And so here we have his prayer. And John 17, it says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes 
to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Now, there is one overriding theme to this prayer. It is the glory of God, the glorification of God, that God would be lifted up, that people, because of what they seen and heard and what was done, would give greater respect and greater glory to God the Father. Do you realize that that is the theme of the entire scriptures? That is what God wants you and I to do. That is the purpose that we are here for. That is what it is all about. And I I would dare say that when we think of glorifying God, or I should put it this way, when we think of serving God, when we think of doing something that God wants us to do, when is the last time you thought, well, God wants me to glorify him? tell you, that's not a natural thought. We think, well, God wants me to serve him. How does he want me to serve him? Well, he'd like me to serve him in this situation by not blowing my top. I have every right to get angry here and just let him have it. But I'm not going to because I'm going to serve God. Has anybody else ever thought that way? And yet, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the greatest thing that we can accomplish is to bring glory to God. That's what Jesus was concerned about. He was not praying for a secondary thing. He, he, Jesus was not of that mindset. He did not waste time. He was pray, praying for the most important thing. He was praying according to God's will. Why? Because he is God. He cannot pray contrary to that. And yet, what was going to happen to Jesus in just a few hours? He was going to be arrested. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be beaten by the very men that he created. The next morning he would be nailed to a cross, naked and shamed for all mankind to scorn and laugh at. And yet, what is he praying for? He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify the Son, that the Son also may glorify thee. And you need to think about that. But what is the reason we glorify God so much today? I mean, I I don't know that we've ever had, we should never have a uh, testimony time on Sunday night when we're thankful that somebody doesn't say, I'm thankful for my salvation. Uh, Don't ever get tired of hearing someone say, uh, and don't fall into the habit of saying, boy, I ain't got nothing else. Well, thank God for my salvation. Oh, that, that is so unbiblical. 
We glorify him because he suffered in our place. Amen? Now, God's way of glory is always a little different. In, in man's way of glory, what do you do? You accomplish some great thing, and men will glorify you. Right? I mean, stop and think. Uh, you're a murderer, uh, a violent anarchist. You spend 27 years in jail and you decide to become a peaceful person. And the world falls down at your feet and worships you. That's the life story of Nelson Mandela in two sentences or so. He, he was a very vile, violent human being until he went to prison. I don't know what happened in prison. He certainly didn't find God or give any testimony to knowing the God of the Bible. But he decided that a Gandhi would be a whole lot better person to imitate. And he, he did become a peacemaker in many senses of the word and end some of the violence that was over there. And that's not a bad thing. And people worship him as a result. But that wasn't God's way. God suffered. He humbled himself. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what the three hours in Gethsemane is about. And here we have him praying to be glorified that the Son also may glorify thee. Now, do you see the pattern here? What is the pattern of God's love? Do you remember from the previous chapter? God loves the Son, the Son loves us. We take that love and we give it to other people. God glorifies the Son and the Son wants to return that glory to the Father. Now he's going to do something else with that glory in a little while down toward the end of this prayer. But the end result of that glory is still the same thing. Glory is something that belongs only to God. There's a word that we use a lot, and we use it wrongly and, and out of context. We use the word awesome. That was awesome pizza. Uh, you do a fancy little job driving around, and you fit through the little cracks and all of that and don't cause an accident. I was awesome driving. No, awesome, in its true definition and what it is, is means there is nothing comparable to that. Now, I don't care how good the pizza is. Somebody else has pizza just as good just down the street. Uh, this is New York. Now, if it was Oklahoma, uh, things might be a little different there. Uh, but in, in New York City, it's, it's just an improper usage. The word awesome should only be used referring to God it is the way it should. And here we have something. God gives glory to the Son, that the Son may give glory back to God. Now let's read on through here. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. It says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. Did Jesus have power over all flesh? Yeah, in just a few hours, the guards are going to come, and he's going to say, whom seek ye? And they're going to say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall down on the ground. Peter whips out his sword, and he's going to protect Jesus. I love Peter, don't you? And he says, put it up. He said, I could call the angels. You know what? All we need is the cosmic street sweeper to come by and put the ashes in a dustpan after the angels were done. I mean, there'd been nothing left. Remember, one angel did in a whole army all by himself one night, 180,000 corpses. You imagine what 72,000 angels would do? I mean, it's an incredible thing. He had the power, but you want to know what the mark or the manifestation of his great power is? It is eternal life. Of course, how many books and how many explorers and how many scientists and, I mean, just uh, go on, don't do this, go on the web and <laughs> Google longevity. How many hits are you going to get? 40 gazillion, because man is trying to live forever, isn't he? I heard one of those nuts late night uh, radio. I think I was just listening to keep me awake while I was putting together Andrew's crib uh, before he was born. And and I remember uh, going and getting the radio and bringing it out in the living room because this guy was talking about the Wizard of Is. What he was doing was blaspheming I am. God's name in the Bible. And he talked about how human beings should be able to live a thousand years. There's nothing in the human genome. We kill ourselves. Our bodies are programmed to die. Do you think that might be the difference between Methuselah and us? 969 years out. I wish I could have called up and asked him that question. Do you believe that Methuselah lived a thousand years? I know what the answer would be, and so do you. Oh, that was just a bunch of fairy tales out of the Bible. But here he is believing that you can do that if you only buy his vitamins. Hasn't worked yet. But Jesus said, I'm going to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me. Now, how do you get eternal life? And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Does that sound too simple to you? But see, if you know God, Are you going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to repent or bring your sins to God if you know who God really is? 
See, this is one of the points that we've often made over the years. The problem is we don't know God. We don't know him the way we should. If we did, if we were as close to God in reality as we are in our own minds and in our own thought processes, our lives would be different, would they not? Because life eternal, all you need to get to heaven is to know God. That he's the only true God. To know, to have that knowledge demands that you do all the things the Bible says to be saved. And guess what? It makes you want to live the Christian life God's way. To know God gives you the knowledge of what is sin and what is not. Amen? If you knew God, you would know what's wrong. We all together still? I mean, this is life eternal. It's just to know who God is. And to know Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Jesus in verse 4 says, I glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, I'm not going to get every little bit in, but here is an understanding of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. You know, they write books about this subjects trying to explain what it says right there. Jesus said, Father, I want you to glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. When is that going to happen? Well, resurrection Sunday morning, amen. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, and of course I love to say this, the the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, amen. It was rolled away so that we could see in. And Jesus is praying for the glorification of God. And and I just want to challenge you here. If you want to change your prayer life, if you want God to answer your prayer, start praying for the things that God wants you to pray for. And, And Jesus is setting the standard here He is telling us what is important. Do you think if you prayed, God, use me to glorify you today, do you think God would want to answer that prayer? Yeah, he would. So often, and and I'm speaking of myself, I spent half the day figuring out all the parts that we're going to need to fix the door out there. Uh, And yes, I I want the Lord to be glorified in fixing the door. But you know, it really wasn't my first thought. My first thought was somebody getting hurt and suing the church or breaking the glass or other things. And that is the way we think, is it not? And Jesus here at this critical moment in time is taking his attention and not putting it on all the physical things that you and I would put it on at that moment. 
He's gone past all of that. And he's praying for and begging for the glorification of the Father through the Son. That's amazing to me. And he gives us a peek into eternity past because he was with the Father and they shared their glory because they were the same person. It's the only way you can share glory. They were the same person. Three persons, one God, same God in heaven before creation was. Now, we come here to verse 6 and where Jesus' work in the world. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy what? What's the last word there? Word. If ye love me, ye shall keep what? My commandments, his word. Jesus said, listen, I've manifested them myself. I've mani- I'm sorry, I manifested thy name. And, you know, if I were a Calvinist, I would be making a big deal about this. The men that thou gavest, you know, God gave, he knew who was going to get saved. And you know what the Bible teaches us that God knew who was going to get saved before the foundation of the earth? He knew. But he didn't choose. He gave us the ability to choose. Isn't that an incredible truth? But he already knew who was going to and who wasn't. And that's all implied right here in this passage. Woe be to the Calvinist that goes to John chapter 17. Well, woe be to the Calvinist that goes to the scripture. (laughs) Because wherever you want to go to prove Calvinism, you either have to change the context and the passage of the scripture and deny the words, or you have to deny Calvinism because it's not in the Bible. Contrary to what other people have said. And so here we have... The key is he manifested the name, they kept the word. If you know God, you will keep his word. The better we know God, the less temptation reaches us. We've, you know, many examples have been used, but I I like the one of the pencil. In my younger days, before tinnitus and all uh, tinnitus and all that came in, I could take a regular wooden pencil and just put it in my fingers and go, and be in three or four pieces. Maybe that's the reason I have tinnitus. I don't know. But that is the nature of a man. We're easily broken, are we not? But it wouldn't even take a good steel rod. Um, Even a nice piece of brass or a good piece of aluminum, if we just got a little duct tape and attached that to the pencil. I don't know a living man that was going to attempt. 
Because if you do that, what's going to break is not the pencil. It's going to be the fingers and the joints. And uh, those will not heal. You see, the picture of the human being is we're like the pencil. You get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. The unbreakable rod. And the only thing that's going to happen to those who try to attack the Christian is they are the ones that are going to be broken. But if we were to put spacers between the pencil and the rod, guess what? Everything changes again, doesn't it? He said, I made plain. That's what the word manifest means. He said, I made plain, I've declared uh, the name of the Father to those men. They have kept thy word because they knew the Father. Now look at verse 7. It says, now they have known that all things whatsoever whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. I want you to go back to chapter 16. And read with me 29 and 30. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou came forth from God. You know what? The disciples knew where Jesus came from. But what was going to happen? When Jesus was going to be arrested, they were going to run for their lives. Peter was going to deny that he even knew the Lord three times. The last time he was going to use cursing and swearing in order to prove that he didn't know who Jesus was. And you know what? They believed him. But who was going to preach on Pentecost? Ah, Peter was. And so we see here that they knew that everything that Jesus did came from God. Now look at this, verse 8. For I have given unto them what? The words. I I just got to stop here for a minute. There's so much here. We have a whole study in theology called bibliology, the study of the words. And we talk about textual criticism and we talk about are these words uh, in the text and most of the scholars argue today about certain passages shouldn't be in your Bible and they go back and forth. Let Let me tell you, beyond any honest inquiry, you can trust your King James Bible to be a physical representation of the words that Jesus actually spoke while he was here on earth. You do not have to worry about it. If you want an honest inquiry. Now, if you want to be dishonest about your study, well, there's just little we can do. You know, if you want to believe that there's three and four Isaiahs because there's no way that Isaiah could have known that Cyrus was the general of the army that would open the brazen gates in the Euphrates riverbed and would give the order to rebuild Jerusalem 400 years before it happened, there's no way that could happen. 
well, then you have to believe that that's history. But if you know God, it's no big deal. It's no big deal for him. Somebody who was a mathematician one time tried to do the statistic, statistical analysis on the probability of Jesus accidentally fulfilling the prophecies that the scripture says he fulfilled in his birth and in his life. Uh, the numbers don't go that high. It's not statistically possible. And yet, there are books that have been written saying, well, Jesus realized he was born in Bethlehem and some of these things, and he decided to make himself fit the prophecy. How foolish can you get? But Jesus is concerned about his words. He promised that he would preserve his words. And by the way, if you want to get to know God, there's only one way you're going to get to know God. His words. That's why we give out the Bible reading schedules. That is the minimum daily requirement. And yet we struggle just to get through the Bible reading schedule. How many of you enjoyed memorizing all those verses for Christmas Eve? That, that was fun. You know, we're going to have to do something like that for Easter. And uh, we've just got to, to work on that because memorizing Scripture, it's one of the ways that we get to know His words. And Jesus is concerned. He said, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now, I love verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me for they are thine. How many times has someone said, oh, but we're all God's children. No, we are not. God is not praying for you if you are not saved. You are not enjoying his favor. He is praying for those that he knows will believe. Amen? He's praying for them. He prays for us. And here it gets a little, uh, I don't know what you would call it, almost like a sing song we might think of. Uh, because the words kind of rhyme, but you've got to get the import of these words. It says, for they are thine, the end of verse 9. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. You know, I told my wife many years ago, I said, now that we're married, I said, everything you have is mine. Everything I have is mine too. No, I was just teasing. I said, everything I have is yours. All the debt and every, I mean, it's just, no. The simple truth is, what God is saying, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, everything that I have belongs to the Father. Everything the Father has belongs to me. We are one. 
and I am glorified in them. Oh, let's go back to the theme. What is the theme of this prayer? What is the main request? The request is that the Father will be glorified, that the Father will glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify the Father. And now the Son says, I'm glorified in those that you, God the Father, gave me out of the world. And of course, you could preach a whole sermon on out of the world. Uh, Is it any wonder why the new Christianity for the last 50 years has been trying to get into the world? It's because they don't know the Father. If they knew the Father, they would be out of the world, not trying to participate in it. That tells us this is setting up the paradigm, if you wish, for the Antichrist. Because he will be the ultimate worldling. I believe if you want a type of the Antichrist, you need, no look, you need look no further than King Solomon. He was the greatest, richest, most powerful, and most wise of all the kings of the earth. Antichrist will be like that. He will answer the world's problems. You wonder why our politicians are getting us in such a mess today. It's so the Antichrist can come along and straighten it all out. And when he does, what's the whole world going to do? Fall down and worship him. He's going to receive glory from the world. That's one thing Jesus never received. He received glory from those who have believed on him. The triumphal entry as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. That praise and that glory was from people all over the Jewish world who had heard and understood who Jesus was and glorified him on that day. Now, I don't know what happened to them between Sunday and and Thursday, but we do know that the chief priest and the Pharisees had an awful lot to do with what happened on Thursday morning as Jesus was sent to the cross and manipulating the crowd and their request and all of that. And so here we come down and Jesus is claiming all that is God's and the fact that all that is God's is his and all that is his belongs to God. And that he is glorified in them. Now, many, many sermons have been preached on this subject and ought to be. Do you know why the devil hates you so much as a Christian? How many remember what his job was before he became the devil? He was the anointed chair of the cover. He was the reflector of God's glory throughout the universe. He's not there anymore. That was his job to reflect, to bring glory to God. What did Jesus just say about us? That he is glorified in us. We got his old job. That is what we are here to do. 
And I'll, I'll tell you, I believe it's the thing that we put the least effort into. And it's where we ought to have our primary direction of purpose and life is in living to bring glory to God. We come down here to verse 11 and says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Now, books and books, how many books have been written on this subject? And Jesus covers it in a sentence. How is God going to keep us? Through his name. Be careful with God's name. If you know him, that is salvation. Be careful with his name. He is going to keep us. The idea here is unity, is oneness with God. As we are one with him, God is going to be glorified in us. When we are not one with him, we are sinning against him and robbing him of his glory, which is our duty to do, is to bring glory to God. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, people want to talk about losing their salvation and getting their salvation. Here's, here it is. Jesus said, I've kept them. How did I keep them? In his name. Amen. He said, there's only one that was lost. The son of perdition. Now, let me ask you a question. Can the son of perdition ever have been saved? Mm-mm. No, just as Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of perdition, always belonged to the devil. God did not assign Judas the job. He volunteered for it. He volunteered through his unbelief and through his choices of refusing to know and admit who Jesus was, even though he walked with him as the other disciples. And I've had people argue with me, I don't think Judas did any miracles. Well, read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, in, in thy name done, cast out demons and done many wonderful works. And I will, I will proclaim unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Miracles have never been a sign totally that you are from God. Because the devil has always had his miracles as well. The ultimate proof... That you are from God is what? Obedience to the words. Amen? I mean, if somebody came in here and started, was able to walk down to the local hospital and empty the hospital. I mean, the real kind of miracles. I mean, unexplainable miracles just go through floor by floor and empty the hospital. That would be miraculous, would it not? But if he said, believe on me instead of on Jesus, would you believe him? Why am I getting... It's not a trick question. 
Now, I'm giving you what is called a hypothetical, not going to happen. But if it could, would you believe on him because of the miracles that he did? Or would you believe in the word of God because that's what you already have? I hope and pray you'd believe in the word of God. Not in the phenomena. Amen? And here is how they are kept. It says, we are kept through thine own name. The son of perdition is lost. Why? Because somebody had to betray Jesus to fulfill the scriptures. And now I come to the end. These things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, what is Jesus' joy? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, down to verse 22 of that same chapter. I believe it's verse 22. It says, to the general assembly of the firstborn. Jesus' joy was that some of those people in the world would know who he is, believed he came from the Father, and give glory to the Father because of the Son. And so that other people may see what happens in their life and give glory to the Son and the Father because of the way we live. And this pattern is repeated. That's how we get love. That's how we get all of the things, the good things that God has. He gives them to us, but he gives them to us with a purpose, with a direction. They come to us and we are to reflect them to others and ultimately back to the Father. Amen? And I'll be careful with our time here. No way we're going to finish this tonight. We'll just pick up here next Thursday night with a little review. And... um, But I want you to to leave thinking about something. How can I bring glory to the Father? Well, it's by obeying his commandments, amen? It's keeping his word. It's being kept by God in his name. By what? By the way, what's one of his names? In the beginning was the word. That's one of his names. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. There are so many other names that God has. I don't have to be afraid of what they are out there because he is. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would take our church. And Lord, of course, not everybody's here tonight, but that you would work in our hearts. Lord, it is just so easy to be concerned over things that are important but are not anywhere near first priority. Lord, we just ask that you would help us keep your glorification foremost in our hearts and in our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. And again.
We'll just take a moment before that prayer is finished.